Father's Day is, has a little bit of history, and I'll just tell you something about that before we begin. But in uh, 1910, there was a lady out in Washington, and she had listened to a message on Mother's Day about mothers. Her name was Sonora Smart, and she thought it would be a good idea to have a Father's Day when fathers would be honored. And so the first one was June 19, 1910. 1972 it was declared a national holiday about 51 years ago. But we're going to take the opportunity this morning to look into God's Word, and we'd like to, have, we'd like to be encouraged We'd like to be instructed, and we need to be challenged. But you know, there's, this is not an easy thing to do, and I'll tell you why. We were down in uh, Missouri last weekend for our son's wedding, and Paul Carnes and I were in a, involved in a conversation. What we were talking about was this, that as we grew up, we recognized that our fathers had some behaviors that weren't always helpful in our family. We didn't want to repeat those, but you know what? When we grew up and had families of our own, we unconsciously found ourselves repeating some of those behaviors. Our fathers were imperfect, were imperfect. And I recognize in my own father some behaviors that he had adopted from his father. We have that sin nature that makes us imperfect. And so when I stand here this morning, and after I've looked in God's word, I'm going to allow you to listen while I preach to myself. And I would never want to give the impression that somehow I know it. I've been successful in everything. When my wife and I got married, we were conscious that there were certain things we didn't want to see repeated in our marriage, and the Lord gave us some help in some areas, but there are other areas that we came to realize that, in fact, we were repeating things. But when we go to God's word and we see his grace, we can all be, by God's grace, we can do better. And so I would like to notice with you this morning some examples of fathers in scripture. Now when you look at fathers in scripture, there aren't very many good ones. Now there are some good things that fathers did, but we can learn from those things. And so that's what I would like to do with you this morning. You know, the world has a thousand philosophies about how to do things, how to raise our families. In fact, Back in 1946, there was a man whose name was Dr. Benjamin Spock. How many of you have heard of Benjamin Spock? Yeah, a few of you. And he wrote a book about child raising and baby care, and it was widely read and widely accepted. I've never read the book, I confess that, but I do know this, that it went on to influence a whole generation. And one of the ways that it influenced them was to promote a sense of permissiveness in which children were uh, considered to uh, be stifled if you didn't let them do what they wanted to do, some philosophy like that. But we as believers need to go to God's word and to find out what God says. And that's what we would like to do this morning. On the way down to Missouri, we were talking a little bit about examples of fathers in scripture. And Maria mentioned Job. You know, I had never thought about Job necessarily as a father, but I would like you to turn to the book of Job to begin this morning. And you know, we learn a lot of valuable lessons as we talk to each other and we talk our families. And so I'm going to share some things that were a blessing to me. The book of Job, in just a few verses from the beginning of the book, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, 
And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. That is, he hated evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Let's just look to the Lord one more time before we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be back with dear fellow saints, those who have encouraged us, those who have taught us. And Father, we thank you for your word we have with us. We thank you for the divine inspiration that has, that you have given, you've given it to us by divine inspiration. We know that it's the infallible word of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and we admit that we need his help this morning, not only to speak your word, but to understand it and above all, to put it into practice, that it might transform our lives to make us more in the image of your son. And so we ask these things, Father, for your glory now. Amen. The book of Job is a very interesting book and I won't take the time this morning to talk about that, except that the man, Job, was one who was a godly man. And Job was not aware that there was a cosmic contest, if you will, between God and Satan, and that he was the object lesson in it. But you know, we learn many valuable lessons in the book of Job, and the first uh, lesson, one of the lessons we learn that God is always in control. Satan may have a certain leeway, but God puts limits on it. But that's really not our subject this morning. Notice that this man, by God's estimation, was a very godly man. And we hear, we read here that uh, in verse 6, and now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to, before the Lord, and Satan came also with him. And the Lord said unto him, unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And of course, Satan says, From going to and fro throughout the earth. And the Lord said unto him in verse 8, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. So this is God's estimation of, of Job as a godly man. And you know, we as fathers and as parents need, first of all, if we're going to be in a, effective in our families, to have a godly approach in our lives. And we need to have priorities in our lives. And as fathers, one of the greatest priorities is to be concerned with the spiritual well-being of our children. But it's going to start with me, first of all. And I know that Job had tremendous interest in the welfare of his children spiritually. It was a priority. It was the first thing that was very important to him because he says he made sacrifice and he did this continually. It's very easy in this world for us as fathers to have priorities in other places. You know, we have to work. We have to make a living. And for some, there's a desire to succeed in the world. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we trust godly fathers and godly mothers, our priorities need to be 
in our families. Our priorities need to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Job is an example of that. You know, I think there are more examples of godly mothers in Scripture than there are fathers. And on Father's Day, Pastor Stephen talked about that very, very well. But as we look in God's Word, we do find some examples of fathers that can teach us. And Job is one of those. And so, fathers, we need to be concerned with our own spiritual lives. If we're going to be an example to our children, if we're going to truly have priorities in their lives. I remember many years ago, there was a family in Grand Rapids where I grew up. I think they only had one son. And this son had a desire to live for the Lord, and he wanted to go to Bible school before he did anything else after graduating. His parents, however, wanted him to go to college. They wanted him to be successful. They wanted him to have an education. And I don't know what the end of that story is, but I can remember being very concerned about it because apparently their spiritual priorities did not lie with raising a godly son. At least not, they weren't serious about it. We need in our families to have priorities set, things that are very important to us. And as, as fathers, as mothers, we need to have a priority to raise our children in a godly way. And so we see that Job was an example of that. And so we as, as parents, as fathers, we need to cultivate our own spiritual lives. And we heard a good message also on family devotions, personal devotions, and prayer. I would challenge us this morning to be much in prayer for our children. I remember reading an article about uh, parents whose daughter, I think it was, it got involved in some cult. And I just remember this part of it, that they admitted in this article that they had never prayed for their children. Now, I don't know where they were spiritually, but I remember that. And we need to be in much prayer for our children, that God would work in not only in their lives, but in our lives as well. And then we need to be involved in learning God's word as fathers. The Bible study that equips us then to be the godly parents we want to be. Now, I don't know if, it doesn't tell me here that Job prayed for his children. And when I first thought about this, when Maria first said this, I, I knew that Job prayed. You know why I know that? Because over in chapter 42, we hear after all the things that Job went through, we find out that God commanded Job to pray for his friends. He calls them miserable comforters at one point. And that you read the story and you'll know why he said that. But God says this <coughs> uh, in verse 7, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliaphaz the Timonite, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and so on. In verse 10, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And so I would have to believe, and I'm very cautious about reading things into Scripture, but Job prayed for his friends, or prayed for his family. And I do know 
whether that's recorded or not, that that has to be a priority in our, in our lives. To pray that God would protect our children in this evil world. That God would enable our children, and I pray this, we pray this together, that our children would be able to do a better job as parents someday than we do. By God's grace, we pray for our children and we teach our children. You know, we're all teachers whether we know that or not. We teach every day of our lives. We teach by example, we teach by what we do well, we teach by what doesn't go so well. And we need to teach the word of God to our children, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so I would present you this morning that Job is a good example of a godly father whose priorities were to bring up a godly generation, to see his children live for the Lord. Now, I'd like to look at another example. And if I were to ask you who you think the worst father in all of Scripture is, what would you tell me? Any guesses? Jephthah, well, that's good. It's not the one I'm thinking of, but uh, yeah, that's a, a story, story so strange that I almost hesitate to talk about it in public. That's not the one I'm thinking. Anybody else? Well, oh boy, there's another one. <laughs> I won't argue with that either. Well, you know, the devil, the devil is called a father. He's the father of lies. And there's no truth in him. One more. Eli. Oh boy, you've got lots of good answers. Eli was a very bad example. And it was so bad, in fact, that his sons were judged. Did I hear somebody say something over here? Lot. Lot. There's the one I'm looking for. And all these other answers are good. But I'm going to turn to, to Genesis chapter uh, 13 here. And that's my vote for the very worst father in all of Scripture. You say, why do you want to talk about the worst example? Well, you know, we can learn from bad examples of what not to do. And certainly Lot provides a lot of information for us in that respect. Let's read a few verses here. In verse 1, And Abraham went out of Egypt... He and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the south. And Abram was very rich with cattle and silver and gold. Now, for sake of time, let me just summarize the next little part. They had a problem because they were both very wealthy, had lots of cattle, and they decided in order that, uh, and so that they would not conflict with each other, that they were going to separate. And Abraham gave Lot, the first choice. And here's what he said, did. In verse 9, is not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right hand. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest out of Zoar. And so Lot takes a look around. And this tells me that Lot's priorities and what happens after this had nothing to do with his family. It had everything to do with himself. Now it's interesting that Lot really wasn't supposed to be in this position at all. And if you look back at Genesis chapter 12, um, you find here that the Lord says in verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, 
and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them and bless uh, them that bless thee and curse them and curse and so on. And so it tells us that Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now, had, had Abraham done exactly what God had said? What went wrong to begin with? He says in, at the end of chapter 11 here, which is really where I should have started, and it says, And Terah took Abraham his son, and Lot the son of Haran, and his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of Chaldees unto the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. The Lord had said, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. The Lord had said, I want you to leave, and I want you to leave all your relations behind. But instead, Abraham took his father and he took Lot along. And so at the beginning, Abraham was setting a bad example. And you know, we as fathers can set good examples and bad examples. And sometimes we don't see the end of those lessons, those examples, until much later in our children's lives. And so it was here. And you'll find that out. And so Abraham went up out of Egypt, we read. Now that brings us back to another place in chapter 12 because there was a famine. And Abraham went down to Egypt. We don't have any record that he asked God about this decision, but he went down to Egypt. And you know the story, I think most of you, how he got into trouble with his wife. And the various things that happened down there, we haven't time to look at all of that. But when we come to chapter 13 again, Abraham went up out of Egypt, and his wife and all that he had in Lot went with him unto the south. So then when we come to Lot's choice of where he was going to settle, it tells us here that he looked and he lifted up his eyes and he saw before him the... Uh, well that was well watered and it was like the land of Egypt as thou comest to Zoar. You see, the influence that Abraham had, his bad example, was picked up by Lot. If Lot hadn't been down there in Egypt, he wouldn't have had this comparison to make. And so he makes a bad choice. And bad choices are going to have bad consequences. And then we find, after he makes a bad choice, Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east and separated themselves from the other. In order to solve this problem of being too close together, he separated himself from the godly influence of Abraham. And we need to be very careful in raising our children to be in a fellowship like this, where there's a godly influence, where the word of God is taught. We can separate ourselves from good influences and we can find ourselves in the middle of bad influences. And it says, Lot chose him all, and he separated. And Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. This is his fourth bad choice. Because the cities of the plain were near this wicked, wicked city of Sodom. We're told that, that the, uh, the wickedness of, of Sodom was very great. And some of you adults will know that the word is the name of Sodom is used of something very wicked today. And it tells us here then that he pitched his tent towards Sodom. 
But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord. And the Lord said unto him, after Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and so on. And so we find here that Lot makes choices that are bad choices. And he separates himself from a godly influence. And we find out that he pitches his tents towards Sodom. First of all, he's in the plains near there, and then he gets closer. Now, when you come over to chapter 14, you find another story in which Lot is captured by some kings who made war against Sodom. And it was Abraham who God used to rescue him. You know, it's interesting, too, that we find evidences of God's grace all through the Bible in the face of man's failure. It's interesting, even in Lot's life, he wasn't supposed to be there. But you know, the godly influence that he was under did teach him the word of God. And when we read the sordid history of Lot, we would have no idea that Lot was even a believer in the true God. But you know he was. How do I know that? Because when I come to 2 Peter chapter 2, it has some very remarkable statements there. And it says this. In 2 Peter chapter 2. about this man Lot. And here, Peter is writing about false teachers and God's ability to deliver us. And this is what he says in verse 7, or verse 6. And turning, well, let's go back to 5 for connection. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into the ashes, and condemning them with an overthrow, making them as an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that the, that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Interesting that God records here that he was a righteous man, yet a righteous soul. And he was troubled by the wickedness that he saw around him. But you would never know that from the book of Genesis. He was setting a very bad example, and his testimony was ruined. It had no effect later on on his family. And so we find that, the, but we do find the grace of God, and we can trace it through his life in spite of his failure. And we thank God, you know, that we are flawed parents, flawed fathers, but the grace of God is there. His empowerment, undeserved by us, to accomplish in us and through us his will. And so in spite of recognizing our flaws, we can look to God to give us the grace we need, the wisdom we need, to raise our children in a godly home. And that ought to encourage us. And then, you know, we turn over to Genesis chapter 19, and we find that not only was he dwelling toward the cities and that he was dwelling finally in Sodom, but we read this verse in chapter 19, and there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, I haven't time this morning to tell you about what came before. But notice this, he sat in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean? Well, many times the word gate in scripture 
means these physical doors and be in the wall. You remember they closed those gates in the, in the city of Jericho when they were threatened by the uh, nation of Israel. Samson carried the gates of uh, Gaza away when he was angry. But there are many times, and there are several times in the book of Genesis, where gates mean something else. I picked up a magazine one time, and there was an article on archaeology, you know, how they dig in the past and unearth these old cities. And there was a picture of a wall with a big gap in it. And there were stone benches on either side of that. And the caption of this picture was this that this was the area in front of the gate in which legal transactions took place. The authorities of that city would gather to solve problems and settle legal matters. And you know, that's exactly what we find when we look at all of the mentions of the word gate here. One of them, one of the most striking is in the book of Ruth. And there, if you read that, you find out that Boaz was going to marry, wanted to marry Ruth. But there needed to be a legal matter settled because there was another man who had first uh, responsibility. God had said in the Old Testament in the law that when there was a widow, that the the brother or someone was to marry her to keep the lineage going. And so Boaz presented this, and the man said he couldn't do it. And then we find that Boaz, to settle this matter legally, took off his shoe and gave it to him. It was like signing a legal contract, but all of this was done in the gate. That that uh, town square, that uh, courthouse, where all of these things took place. And there are several other mentions which I won't take the time this morning to read in the book of Genesis. One of them is in Genesis chapter 22. And here, in Genesis chapter 22, we read one of the times when God is making a covenant and making great promises uh, to Abraham. And he says this, that in, uh, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies. In other words, God was going to bless him, and he was going to to uh, overtake the authorities of his enemies. And we find another place in chapter 23 where Abraham is going to buy a place to bury his wife. And he bargains, and the legal transaction takes place in the gate where the authorities came. And you know, this also helps us to understand the verse we read about in Matthew 16 and verse 18, where the Lord Jesus says to Peter and all the disciples, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The authorities of hell are not going to win. And we read about in, in Ephesians, that there are principalities and powers in high places. We've already, somebody's already mentioned Satan. But the authorities of hell itself are not going to prevail against God's church. Even though sometimes, I admit, it looks like that. But we have his promise. And so here's the, here's the situation. Lot is going down and down and down spiritually even as he goes up and up and up in the things of this world. And now he's on the town council. He's sitting in the gate. And we continue to, to read about Lot. And we find here that 
these angels came down. And they come to Lot, and they come to rescue him. And we read in Lot uh, chapter 19 a little later, something else of the grace of God, the Lord being merciful unto him. And you remember the story, we haven't time again to look at that, how that Lot was practically dragged out of the city by those angels. And the sad thing was when Lot, when they told Lot to go to see his, to warn his sons-in-law that they thought he was kidding. They thought he was mocking. And it tells us here, and Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which were married, which married his daughters, and said, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Lot had so destroyed his reputation, so destroyed his godly testimony, that even his sons-in-law did not believe him. We as fathers need to be very careful with our testimonies, with our walk before God, because it's going to influence those around us. And if we're going to marry, if we're going to raise godly children, we need to set a godly example. We need to make right choices. Lot is an example of somebody who did about everything wrong. And you remember that they went out of the city. They had four commands. He was to escape for your life. He was not to look back. He was not to, to stay in the plain, and he was go to the mountains. Well, he argued with God a little bit. But you know, his wife did look back. That was where her heart was. If Lot had set a godly example in his family, this could have been a different story. But even his wife was affected by this. And what happened to Lot's wife? You can tell me turned into a pillar of salt. And in fact, the Lord makes comment on that uh, over in the New Testament. Remember Lot's wife. But it tells us here in verse 29 of chapter 19 that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God's grace in the face of man's failure. And you remember how that Lot finally did end up going into the mountains. He lived in a cave. He lost everything he had. And what happens next, I don't even want to read in public. But I will tell you this, that he had two daughters, and each of them had a son. One was Moab, and the other was Ben-Ami, uh, uh, ben Ami, and it tells us that he's a father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Now, if you read later on, we find out that the Moabites and the Ammonites were a constant thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. There are consequences to making bad decisions. But you know, you see God's grace as well. Remember the, I remember, remember the story of Ruth. What country did Ruth come from? Who can tell me? She was a Moabite, exactly. And the Moabites were a cursed nation. God would annihilate them eventually. But you know, Ruth, the Moabitess, married Boaz. And when we come to the book of Matthew, we find Ruth in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God. They ended up, uh, Ruth's uh, in-laws ended up in Moab. They went there because there was a, a famine. Probably didn't ask for God's will. But we can be thankful that we see all through Scripture these evidences 
of God's grace. And so we need that as fathers. We need that as parents. And so we find that Lot makes some bad example, but we can learn from bad examples. In fact, uh, the book of uh, Corinthians tells us that these things were written for our learning, our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come, talking about the nation of Israel, all their problems. And God says he's recorded that, that we can learn. We're about out of time, but I'd like to leave couple of other things with us this morning. When we turn to Ephesians chapter 6 here, we have some admonitions to a different groups of people. And the first one, interestingly enough, is children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But in verse 4, we have any fathers. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture and admonition of the Lord, we could look up. These words are very interesting. The word admonition here has to do with instruction in righteousness. Actually, that Greek word is used there in Timothy in that. And the... Uh, the word nature, nurture, here, has to do with teaching our children as well. Two things about provoking our children. That's what we're not supposed to do. It comes from a word that means along with anger. And we can frustrate our children. We can exasperate them. I'm going to just give you two. I have a list of them that I made one time. I think I was helped out in that list by others. But, uh, you know, we need to think about how we speak to our children and our wives. I was in Walmart not so long ago, and a lady came down the aisle, and a little girl, probably three years old, was standing, and the mother spoke to her very harshly. And the little girl responded by really screaming defiantly. And I wondered if this was a, a pattern in this family. You know, how we speak to our children is going to influence them. I've heard parents, you know, order their children around like it was some kind of a military um, organization, sometimes very harshly. How do we speak to each other? Because that's going to have an effect upon us. We can provoke our children. How do we speak to our wives? You know, I've been guilty of speaking to my wife when I got irritated, when I was tired, with impatience. And it has an effect upon us. Let's be careful. If you look in the book of James, you're going to find there that the tongue is a real problem. People have tamed all kinds of animals, but you've never been able to tame the tongue, not without the help of God. And so we need to be very careful. We can read about our tongue and what we say in the book of Proverbs. That's the first one. How do we speak to our children? Do we command them? Is it harsh? It's going to have an effect upon them later on. I can think of some examples of that that I've seen over the years. Let's be careful how we speak to each other. And the second one is this. We won't take any more time to look at that. You know, the three hardest words in the English language for some people is, I was wrong. But in our families as fathers, as husbands and wives, we need to be careful to ask forgiveness, to admit to our children when we're wrong. Or we're going to lose a lot of respect with them. And so let's be careful. Let's be honest with them. 
I remember there was a man many years ago that was old enough to be my father, and I didn't have a very good attitude about that. And later on, as the Lord began to work on me, I went to him one day, and I asked his forgiveness. And he gave it to me very graciously. And you know, from that point on, we progressively became deeper and deeper friends until he went to be with the Lord. And before he died, we were talking one night, and he told me, he said, Dave, when I first met you, I didn't like you very well. And I said, Frank, I know exactly why you said that. And I don't blame you. But I asked him about this matter of what I had said. You know, he didn't remember that. And I thought, how like God, God who doesn't remember our sins, he cast them from the east and from the west. But the fact that I went to him created a friendship which was very, very dear to us. And so as we ask even forgiveness of our children and our wives, it will keep us from, from bitterness. It will keep us from those negative things that are going to influence how our children grow up. What about parents who have been godly parents and they have raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And many of them are going on for, for the Lord, but there's at least one who seems to have turned his back on the Lord and brought heartache to his parents, and that happens. Let me encourage you, don't give up. Keep praying, and for the rest of us, we can pray for each other in these cases. You think of the parable of the prodigal son there in Luke chapter 15 and he came back and there are lots of examples of that don't give up in 1825 there was a man born whose name was John Newton his, his godly mother who had prayed for him died when he was seven he went on to be a sailor like his father which was an occupation that was populated by a lot of rough godless men and he was one of them. He became a slave owner, a slave ship captain. A very evil man. But you know, God saved John Newton. He was like the prodigal son who came back. He wrote many hymns. You're going to recognize this one. He said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's not just poetry. I once, was blind, I, um, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. His God had answered his mother's prayers, and he came back, and so don't give up. And what about those families, maybe who the father is absent, maybe he's, due to a number of reasons, he's not there. You know, you and I have the opportunity to be of help in those families, maybe. James chapter 5 tells us that uh, pure uh, religion is uh, to, before God the Father, is to visit the fatherless and the children in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And I've seen some godly examples of those who would step into these families and spend time with these children. We can pray together for them. Be encouraged and be encouraging to each other. You know, there is a perfect family, there is a perfect father in Scripture. Who can tell me who he is? Heavenly a heavenly father. And you know, in, in Hebrews, just to close in chapter 12, I read these verses. And we haven't time to talk about the context of this, but this is what I read. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? We're told to be perfect as our Father in heaven. Not that we're going to be perfect uh, as he is perfect, but that's our goal to pursue. Someday, you know, we're going to have bodies like unto his glorious body, but for the time being, we, have a, we are very imperfect fathers, but we have a father in heaven. His choices are always right. 
His choices are always perfect. And if we submit to him and to the grace of God, he can take flawed fathers like you and I. We can be an encouragement to others. We can raise, we trust by his grace, godly children, which will have an influence. And you know, as we grow up and finish our families, we're not out of the woods yet. I read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about God's commands, and he says you teach them to your son and your son's sons, three generations. And so as grandparents, you have the opportunity, we should have the opportunity, the responsibility of helping to raise godly grandchildren. You have many young families here, you're not there yet. We will have, we have one new grandchild, we have two more before the end of the year. And I find it very encouraging that Pastor Virgil has spent a lot of time with his grandchildren. I wonder how I can do that. Our children and our grandchildren are hundreds of miles away, but it's a challenge to me to have godly children and then godly grandchildren. May God help us to be godly men and women that we may raise godly families to know the grace of God in our lives like that. Let's, let's look to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We admit that we're flawed, that sin has, flaw, has damaged the image of God in us, but we thank you for the grace of God. We pray, Father, for all of the young families here, for godly parents, for godly fathers. Help them, O oh Lord, by your grace to train their children up in the nurtured admonition of the Lord, the instruction of righteousness, that they will be saved, that they will live for you. And Father, we pray that you would protect us from those bad choices which can mar our testimony, which can mar our families. And we pray, Lord, that our families will glorify you, that they will establish homes which will be a testimony before a world and encouragement to fellow believers. And so we ask that you would work for your glory, and we give these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.